This is the Lesbian Historic Motif Podcast, brought to you by Heather Rose Jones. The show looks at lesbian and sapphic themes in history and literature, and historical fiction with queer female characters, including fantastic versions of the past. We present research, interviews, news of the field, book listings, and original historical fiction for your enjoyment. For even more historic research, check out our blog, Welcome to On the Shelf for April 2021. How's everyone doing? I'm finally back working on my next Alpenia novel and feeling like most of my work routines are back in the groove. Spring is going sproying and my demographic group is finally eligible for the COVID vaccine. My garden is straining at the leash waiting for the contractor to finish getting the new irrigation system set up. And I'm looking forward to the day when I can invite all my local friends over for a garden party again. But in the meantime, I'm inviting all of you to a party celebrating some big milestones for the Lesbian Historic Motif Project. We're celebrating seven years of the history blog, seven years and over 300 publications. Who would have thought? But more importantly, we're celebrating 200 podcast episodes, 200 episodes in almost five years. I don't know about you, but I think that's pretty amazing. I wanted to do something to mark the occasion, and after talking to folks about various options, I decided the best choice was an all-day open house on our Discord server. Um, you did know we have a Discord server, right? You don't even have to be a Patreon supporter or anything to join. All you have to do is ask for an invitation. The Discord has been gradually accumulating members during our soft launch period. Well. Okay, that's a fancy way of saying I've been busy with other things and haven't promoted it as much as I should. But the podcast anniversary party seemed like a good excuse to ratchet up the promo. So on Saturday, May 8th, the week after episode 200 comes out, plan to drop by, chat about lesbian history, about books, about whatever else strikes your fancy. There will be both text and audio video channels available, and I just might be doing some surprise giveaways. Put it on your calendar and ask for an invite link if you aren't already a member. From lighthearted celebration, I'd like to turn to a somewhat more serious subject for a moment. This was inspired by a topic that came up in my social media about lesbian fiction that exoticizes or objectifies characters from non-white or non-Western cultures. Now, I'm a middle-class white American, so I'm not going to try to speak for marginalized readers. But at the same time, I'm a middle-class white American, so if this subject gets people's noses out of joint, I'm not going to be personally hurt by their reactions. And maybe that gives me a responsibility to speak up. I'd like to frame this issue as questions that we can ask ourselves, whether as readers or writers, about the books we love. I'm not going to tell anyone how to think about any particular book, but I'm going to urge you to be mindful and consider the following. Does this story treat the characters as full individual human beings? All the characters, and not only the viewpoint ones. Does this story show an understanding of the history and cultural context that the characters exist in? Does the story recognize and engage with differences in status and power between the characters? Are all the characters given equal agency within their relationships? Or, if not, 
are the consequences of that inequality acknowledged? Does this story assign attributes or reactions to characters that reflect cultural stereotypes? Does the story fetishize certain characters or cultural attributes? How would a reader who shares a cultural background or identity with one of the book's characters feel about how that character is portrayed? How are language or speech patterns used to represent a character's identity? Which characters get to be depicted in a neutral manner, and which are set apart in how they're depicted? How are characters described? What types of physical traits are described positively, and which ones negatively? Whose appearance is treated as the default? Who gets described in contrast to that? When I'm putting together the lists of new books, it sometimes happens that the cover copy for a book makes me uncomfortable about how certain characters or cultures are portrayed in objectifying ways. I don't want to set myself up as a gatekeeper of which books get included or not. But at the same time, I feel a responsibility to my listeners, all of them. Sometimes I'll feel uncomfortable enough that I'll include a cautionary comment. Very, very rarely, I'll quietly leave a title off the list. But we're all responsible for the publishing landscape of lesbian fiction, not only as authors in what we write, but as readers in what we accept in the books we read. We have not always lived up to that responsibility. And the absolute minimal bottom line is that if someone stands up and says, this book depicting someone with my background hurts me in the way that character is written. We have the responsibility to listen and believe and think about the consequences of that. The Lesbian Historic Motif Project blog has finally finished covering all the journal articles I downloaded back in July of 2019. I mixed a number of other books and articles in among them, but that store of material has kept me going for almost two years. It'll be a little while yet before I'm ready to brave social mixing enough to access the JSTOR terminals at the UC Berkeley Library again. So maybe I should work on books for a while. Maybe even some of my recent acquisitions. In March, I covered a rather eclectic selection of topics. Catherine Binhammer's comparative study of how female same-sex sexuality and eroticized pain were treated in later 18th century England. Marilyn Diggs' exploration of relatively early depictions of female same-sex desire as psychological pathology in 19th century American sources. Deborah Nord's exploration of a loose network of middle-class single women in Victorian London who stood outside the supportive communities of feminists, as well as refusing conventional married life. And Mary McLaughlin's detailed history of a very different community of unmarried women in 16th century Ferrara which gives another triangulation on the options women could have available. Then, just for fun, I tossed in an examination of a Regency-era satirical cartoon showing two women making out on a park bench. For April, I've lined up several relatively recent books that examine histories of people who were assigned female but lived male lives through a transgender lens. For me, it's not possible to study lesbian history without studying it in parallel with transmasculine history because of the shifting ways in which gender and sexuality interacted in past societies. 
In the literature of the later 20th century and early 21st century, there has been a tendency to default to treating these people as, quote, women in male disguise, unquote, in all cases. And while I think it's equally mistaken to treat them all universally as trans men, that framework can guide us to a different set of historic understandings than we'd see otherwise. My book shopping is picked up a bit this month. There's a new biography of my favorite 19th century American actress, Charlotte Cushman, and it's a finalist for the Lambda Literary Awards. Lady Romeo, The Radical and Revolutionary Life of Charlotte Cushman, America's First Celebrity, by Tana Wojcik, looks like a more popularly oriented biography than the one I leaned heavily on for my podcast on Cushman. I'll keep hoping that someone in the movie or TV business latches onto her story and decides to make lavish costume drama. The second book I picked up this month is Debating Sex and Gender in 18th Century Spain by Marta V. Vicente. I've covered a number of publications that look at the 18th century seismic shifts in cultural understandings of gender from English and French sources, so it will be interesting to see how Spanish texts cover the same topics. When I get to the part of the on-the-shelf script where I'm supposed to tell you what this month's podcast essay will be, About half the time, I realize in a panic that I haven't picked a topic yet. So, uh, that would be the case this month. I have an idea, but it depends on whether I can brainstorm enough content for it. So I'll leave it a mystery for now, in case I end up doing something different. We have a bumper crop of new and recent books this month, most of them from February and March. The February books come from some unusual angles. The most intriguing is Adeline Lim's self-published memoir, In the Footsteps of Anne Lister, Volume 1, Travels of a Remarkable English Gentlewoman in France, Germany, and Denmark in 1833. Lim is retracing some of the journeys that Anne Lister documented in her diaries and combining her own experiences and thoughts with excerpts from the diaries. For those of you who can't get enough of Anne Lister, this looks like an interesting adventure to tag along on. Whether you try this next one depends on how you feel about real people fiction that introduces a queer element not present in real life. Vivian Dunn's self-published For the Love of Many takes on a fictitious romantic encounter in 1920s Broadway between the future star Joan Crawford and a fellow chorus dancer. A story of secrets and show business, but it's unclear to me why the author chose to associate her character with this specific historic person. Nathan Long's The Woman in the Coffin, published by Oolong Books, is another unusual crossover, this time with a different author's fictional universe. With the knowledge and permission of the original author, Long has written a different viewpoint of characters from Elizabeth Watteson's Dark Victorian universe, following Nellie O'Day, a theatrical male impersonator, and her obsession with an acrobat who performs as part of a mesmerism act. Magic and murder follow. I turned up five March books that weren't on my radar yet last month. First up is another story in Stein Willard's self-published Regency series. The Reserved Doctor. Gender disguise on the part of the title character leads to some romantic confusion for imperiled Catherine Poole, who isn't accustomed to being attracted to men. I'm not familiar with this author, so I can't advise on how well the story handles the gender issues. 
Have you ever looked at the shelves full of het Scottish Highlander romances and wondered what a sapphic one might look like? Sarah Swan has you covered with her self-published Like the Down of a Thistle. In 18th century Scotland, a young widow and her neighbor, whose husband is off at the battles, lean on each other to manage the grueling farm labor. An unexpected love grows, but what will happen when the battles are over and the soldier returns? The author promises us a happy ending, just in case you're worried. In contrast, readers might want to take a look at some of the content notes for Dark and Deepest Red by Anna Marie McLemore from Square Fish. Following parallel stories in 16th century France and the modern day, this reinterpretation of the Hans Christian Andersen story of the Red Shoes includes motifs of persecution of trans people and Romany. In 1518, a strange dancing sickness in Strasbourg is blamed on witchcraft and Lavinia must make a desperate choice. 500 years later, a descendant of Lavinia's family confronts a new curse bound to a pair of red shoes to save his friend Rosella. Notes on Goodreads confirm that the book includes lesbian characters, but the details aren't clear. Vesper St. Clair's Gilded Lily series, set in the upper crust of 1920s New York, has previously focused on male couples, but a new novella in the series, Diamonds and Pearls, from Eventide Press, follows an heiress and a female jewel thief through both speakeasies and Upper East Side parlors. There's a content note for violence, but also the promise of a happy ending. The German author, Helmi Schausberg, seems to specialize in stories set in Ireland. The German-language novel Für ihr Land, For Her Land, from Querverlag, follows Irish nationalist Eileen and Unionist Josie as they are caught up in the Easter Rising and swing between extremes of friendship and conflict against the setting of the struggle for Ireland's freedom. I'll conclude with three April releases, though I'm sure I'll find more next month. In Poison Priestess from Amulet Books, Lana Popovich takes on the Affair of the Poisons in Louis XIV's glittering and dangerous court of Versailles. There's a fantastic element in the story as Catherine Montvazan turns to prophetic visions and sorcery to fight off the threat of poverty, only to find herself facing greater dangers than mere debt. Magic is an even more integral part of the world building in Esther Manzini's The Other Side of Magic from The Parliament House in which a fantasy world based on 16th century Italy finds two young women from opposite sides of a magical conflict thrown together in a common struggle for their freedom. And the final April book is Riley Lachey's romantic steampunk adventure, Dr. Todson's Home for Incorrigible Women from Midnight Jasmine Books. When Caroline Ajax's husband finds her inconvenient, he thinks to disappear her into an asylum. But Dr. Aaron Todson's Home for Women is not at all what Carolyn expected, and neither is Dr. Todson, who has her own mysterious and tragic past. What am I reading? I've made a lot of progress on getting caught up with book reviews, and while it hasn't entirely evaporated my reading block, I can feel things loosening up. I did read one queer historical romance novella this past month, though the pairing involved a trans man, not a female couple. The book was Meg Mardle's The Christmas Chevalier, which is a lovely Victorian-era holiday-themed story involving masquerades, printing presses, and the delicate negotiation of meeting someone anew whom you've known all your life. It has mild peril and a happy ending with a historic grounding that feels solid and effortless. This month, 
Our author guest is Rose Lerner. Today, the Lesbian Historic Motif Project is talking to Rose Lerner, whose story, The Wife in the Attic, has just come out as an Audible original audiobook. Welcome, Rose. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Well, thank you. Why don't you start with a quick synopsis for The Wife in the Attic? I understand it's a new angle on Jane Eyre. Yeah, so it's about a governess who um, gets a, offered a job at a remote, you know, an isolated manor by the sea. <laughs> And she gets there and the, her, the little girl's uh, mother is sick. And, you know, she's told the little girl's mother is sick and, and cannot leave her room. So she's there for a while. And like the, she's kind of vibing with her boss and, you know, but then it, she kind of starts to suspect that something is like not quite right in the house. And of course it, it ends up with her and the, the wife, you know, the first Mrs. Rochester character uh-huh. uh, falling in love. So, wow. A lot of people like playing around with the woman-to-woman relationships in the classic novels because there is sometimes that tension there. It was an era when same-sex emotional relationships were very much to the fore. So you have some interesting thoughts on the intersection of Gothic literature and queerness. Uh, Would you like to expand on that? Well, I mean, I hope they're interesting, certainly. But I I guess... Historically, I mean, I think there's just a lot of queer people that have been drawn to writing gothic novels. I mean, I think Charlotte Bronte was almost certainly queer, Byron, obviously. And so I think there's just sort of like the the whole idea of like dark, unspeakable secrets, I think, is sort of a natural fit for older stories about queer. I think the picture of Dorian Gray would also fall in this mold where it's like, because I think the, the whole idea of like, unspeakability is like so central to the gothic of like something is wrong but I cannot or something is you know there's something going on here that cannot be talked about and that's of course a trope from very early on where the unspeakability of queer love when it is being viewed negatively um, shows up a lot you know in in medieval texts for example really I didn't know that um, I, I definitely tend to think of it as something that queer people do, like, like in the, you know, the, the 19th century, I think that, and even maybe the 18th century, although I'm not coming, but like, I think that idea of, of using the word unspeakable to refer as like a code word yes. um, is something that I see a lot, even before the whole Oscar Wilde, the love that dare not speak its name. Like if you see, you know, if you ever see somebody say an unspeakable tenderness, it's like, okay, that's a gay thing right that they're yeah yeah absolutely and you look for the code word you know an unspeakable crime or an unspeakable uh act uh in in medieval literature and it pretty much is saying you know same-sex activity here that's interesting because you know sometimes I think that maybe I go a little too far with assuming everything is is queer coding because like if you think about it, like the Victorian era, there were actually a lot of other things that were also unspeakable, right? Like you also couldn't talk about kink or adultery or like, you know what I mean? Like there were so many things, but like when I read, for example, Tennyson's like Idols of the King and, or is it Idols of the King? I'm not actually sure. In Lancelot and Elaine, like everything in that story is, seems very queer coded to me because it's like, there's like Elaine who represents the sort of pure innocent longing for someone that can never return their love and it it feels very like pining for your straight best friend kind of in this way (laughs) then there's like Lancelot who's like the confirmed bachelor 
right? Who everyone keeps asking him why he can't get married and he doesn't have an answer for them. And of course, in story, it's that he's sleeping with the queen, but I think it really is easy to read it as that he's gay because it's like, he keeps trying to explain, like, I don't want to get married. And everyone's like, I don't understand. Like everyone wants to get married. So he's like, but I don't, you know? And like, um, and, and because of course I know that Tennyson, or at least I feel very confident that Tennyson and um, the guy that he wrote in memoriam about um, that he was in love with him and that, uh, you know, I don't know if they were boyfriends. I mean, I, I would kind of assume so based on the poem, but like, I don't know, but he certainly, I feel was in love with that guy. I think he's pretty clear about it in the poem. He uses a lot of those code words that like he references Socrates and Michelangelo and Shakespeare and all of those things that were like, kind of, you know, when you see them clustering in a Victorian yeah. thing, you're like, okay, that's, they're trying to tell me something, you yeah. know? And so, because I know that about Tennyson, I trust that reading more than maybe I would otherwise, because if you think about it, it's like, okay, in the Victorian era, you also, you know, there were people who like were having adulterous affairs and couldn't tell, you know what I mean? Because like the whole structure of marriage and sex and, and the family, you know, was very different. And the ideas about divorce were different and the ideas, but about premarital sex were different. And so it's like, there were a lot more things that were taboo and unspeakable, but at the same time. So your historical romances also focus a lot on class issues and and representations of marginalized characters. Do you have a specific purpose in doing that? Or do you just find those characters more interesting to write about? I mean, I guess neither. I, I don't I don't necessarily agree with the framing. I mean, not, not that you're doing this, but like you see this sometimes where people sort of frame it as like, why did this character have to have this uh-huh. marginaliz- marginalization? Yes, it was something of a deliberately provocative framing. <laughs> Yeah, you see this idea of like, why did this character need to have this marginalization? It wasn't serving any function. They could have just been white, queer, or white, straight, whatever it is, right? Christian. It's like, well, yeah, but like, what purpose would their white, straight Christianity be serving either? You know what I mean? It's like, so I think that um, I just want to like, kind of, you know, move away from the idea of like, not having any marginalizations is the default. And then you have to justify doing anything different, you know? with this story I specifically just like like I've been kind of wanting to write a like an FF story for a while I just had the idea of like I was reading uh Castle Rack Rent or part of Castle Rack Rent by Maria Edgeworth and there's a story in there about a guy who keeps his Jewish wife um locked in her room I was just thinking like what if the, what if you introduced a governess into this like wouldn't that be amazing because I love governess stories and so you know, the, the, the story was a queer story. Like that's like, what's the story otherwise, right? So, yeah, yeah. and when I wrote like my first story with a, a Jewish character, I mentally cast an actress and I was looking up like what her um, background was. And it seemed like that, I mean, I, I don't know. I don't think that her background specifically is Jewish, although, but I was looking up like her last name and stuff. And it, I saw that it was like a common name among a Jews that fled the Inquisition or Jews, like Murano Jews, yeah. um, Anusim Jews. And so I was like, and I was at the time, I mean, I still am, but at the time I was in a, like, I, I had just, there had just been something with casting non-Jewish actors for Jewish roles and then casting, like, but then Jewish actors never play Jewish roles, right? Like that. And I was just like, I refuse to do that. So I guess now I have to like research <laughs> Jews. And so 
I mean, it, it was like, I don't necessarily feel that, I don't know. I just feel like I just write what I write. And like, if that ends up having various elements in it for very, you know, reason, it's like, then now I have to research that and, and figure out how to do it. But like, I'm not going to not do it because I don't want to research it. You know, I mean, not that I've never, but like, that seems like chickening out or something to me. So, so changing tack a little bit. Um, so this is an audible original that is coming out from you, and which means that it's, it's just the audiobook to begin with. Um, I understand that there may be a text version eventually or. Yeah, probably uh, in the fall. So how does that change the whole process? Did you write a different style because it was primarily going to be audio? I had actually written most of it before um, Audible bought it. And so I wouldn't say that I changed the style particularly. I do think that it it was unusually suited among my work to being an audiobook already because it is first person and single POV, which I've never done before, but is very common in gothics and is obviously the point of view that Jane Eyre is in. And so, and I think is very suited to gothics because... I think part of the gothic is that all that the main character has is their own perceptions to go on and they are not confident that they can trust literally anything else and maybe not even their own perceptions. And so having multiple POVs kind of defeats that, right? (laughs) Like if you know what the other character is thinking, there's no mystery of whether they can be trusted or not. So I was already writing in that way and that is very suited obviously to an audiobook and so that um, I think worked out really well. The main thing that I did was I just uh, went through and tried to get rid of things that wouldn't need to be said if they were being performed. So if it was like she said tiredly or something like that and uh-huh. the person was obviously going to do a tired line reading like I would put that as a stage direction instead of. Oh. So, so you actually included stage directions in the in the text that you provided? Yes. So, so that is definitely a different way of writing to some extent. Well, I yeah, I mean, I, I didn't do a ton of them and I, I didn't do it as I was going. I did it at, you know, like when I when the revision stage, but I definitely like for the most part, like I wanted to give the narrator a lot of creative freedom. If there was something that was like a joke or something that needed to be delivered in a particular way to be understood, but that was slightly ambiguous in being read, you know, like if I thought maybe the narrator wouldn't understand what I was doing, Uh um, that I would put a state direction to explain it. Like, you know, where, where if a reader reads it, right. And they don't understand it, or they have to go back and like, look at it again to check that they understood it correctly. It's not a big deal. If a hundred people read it and two of them don't get it, it's fine. You know what I mean? (laughs) Um, it's just whatever it's a throwaway joke it's fine but if the narrator misses it Uh and like doesn't you know reads it in a way that makes it not make sense then nobody that's listening is going to be able to understand it so I tried to think about that kind of thing and make sure that things were clear it's so funny I wrote this book about you know solitary confinement and I started writing it before the pandemic and now it's like I have a new understanding. <laughs> I mean, obviously not that it's the same at all to be, you know, in my home because there's a pandemic as to be like locked in my home by somebody else. But uh, still, it ended up being timely in a way that I was not. Yeah, I, I, I've been thinking of not necessarily gothic, but supernatural takes on 
the way we live now, there was a, a minor thread on Twitter the other day about, you know, well, what if you have a haunted Zoom meeting? What if there's a ghost that can manifest as a Zoom presence? And how would you know the difference? Well, you wouldn't until you tried to return their sweater. Yeah, that's that's free for the taking, if you like. But uh, it just I, I was just thinking about, you know, tangibility and physicality and and the way we live now. I love that. Oh, my gosh, you're right. You can't tell if someone's corporeal over Zoom. <laughs> I guess they have to be able to use the computer, but they could have somebody that does it for them. Well, no. What I'm thinking- or they could exist on the Internet. Is that exactly. what you're imagining? Exactly. So that's is it? Is it a background, like a Zoom background that they would have or? Well, there's, there's, there's many possibilities there. I'm just thinking of, you know, what if it is a ghost that, you know, because ghosts could manifest in, in a number of sensory ways, but what if it could manifest as, you know, electronic motion sufficient to produce a signal and it doesn't right, have but- any physicality? Right, but I mean, how would it use Zoom? I guess was my question. Oh, it exists in 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 the tu- in the intertubes, you know. Right. So, what's the background? Well, I think that that could be up for grabs. You know, it could have all, any sort. It could have whatever background it likes because the background is part of its manifestation. Okay. So, oh, so it's specifically a Zoom ghost. It's not like a ghost that exists. I independently but now is using Zoom. Oh no 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 no! It is a a ghost that exists purely within the context of Zoom. Got it. I was imagining it was a ghost and it was now having a social life because it didn't have to be corporeal and, and it could just hang out with people. <laughs> that could happen too, I suppose. But then it would have to be able to like start the Zoom call, right? But I guess if it had like a, a friend or a roommate or whatever that could start the Zoom call for it, then that would be solved. Has your electronics never done something on its own mysteriously? Well, I would assume that meant I was hacked. <laughs> exactly. A Zoom call opened on my computer. You know, there's there's a, a, a um, you know, an angle on it. It's like my, my, my laptop keeps mysteriously, you know, um, coming, coming awake and, 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 and Zoom shows up on it. And it's like, I'm not touching anything. And, you know, is, is Siri doing, doing things when I'm talking in my sleep or, Oh, I mean, I've got lots of possibilities coming right. up. Right. I mean, I, I, like if a ghost was living in my apartment and wanted to use my laptop for Zoom, I think it would have a really hard time. It would have to do it while I was asleep because yeah. otherwise I'm using the laptop. <laughs> <laughs> and then somebody tracks it back to your account and they're saying, it's like, hey, what were you doing at 3 a.m.? You know, it's like, I, I think I was asleep. Oh no, am I sleep zooming or is there a ghost? <laughs> the only or, or, two options. <laughs> or have I been hacked? You know, it's like you know, there it's it's you, you, it's a mystery as well. I guess also it could be like a Zoom ghost that was only a voice and it didn't have to worry about it. Like so it was like a, a no video yeah. too. You might be able to have to like coax it to to appear visually. It's like you know. So this always feels strange to ask an author right after your new book comes out. Uh, But do you have any future projects you want to talk about that our listeners might be interested in? Um, Well, right now I'm working on two new projects. One is the sequel to Wife in the Attic about um, the narrator's best friend who now got a job as a lady's companion. Is that lady's companion as in lady's companion? (laughs) Well, no, I mean, she's a, she's a, you know, a chaperone or whatever, but Uh she will be a lady's companion later. Right. But um, that's a very, that's a very useful 
trope that does, people do not use enough. I agree. If you if you see an old personals ad where it's like lady seeking companion, a lot of times that is code for it's like a lesbian personals ad. Not that like ladies companions in general were like, I mean, I'm sure some of them were right, but like in general, I don't, I'm not saying, but like if you see like a late 19th century personals ad in the newspaper that's like lady uh, seeking companionship or whatever it's like mm, probably probably it's a lesbian thing not like just a job posting uh-huh. is, is the, what I've read so so that was one project and then I'm also uh just it's like a very baby project but I am excited about it I am co doing a co-writing project my first co-writing project ever with Katie Welsh and it is a mystery project and if you're like does that mean it's a mystery or that it's mysterious and the answer is Ah, well, that's great. I'm looking forward, especially to the sequel. So thank you. I'm always interested to hear what my interviewees have been enjoying that they've been reading and consuming recently. Anything uh, you particularly liked you'd like to recommend? Well, The Duke Heist by Erica Ridley is out today as well. The day that we're recording, I don't know when this will air, but, and it is so delightful. It's obviously a slightly different genre. I mean, it's also a Regency and a romance, but it's like a much more sort of rompy, frothy, like fun. And it's sort of like, if you like leverage, it's sort of like leverage meets like the Bat family in the sense of like, you know, Batman and his adorable (laughs) ragtag orphans. And meets like Regency rom-com, like delightfulness. So highly recommend that. Um, I am now, I mean, I don't pretend this is a recommendation because everyone's already seen it, but me, but I just started watching The Mandalorian. I, I have mixed feelings, but I am enjoying it. And I do, Baby Yoda is very, very cute. Uh-huh. <laughs> so I too would adopt Baby Yoda. <laughs> what else? I am currently reading a book about English coroner's inquests. Oh, or the mysterious project, which I am also enjoying, which is called Bodies of Evidence. If anyone wants to learn very detailed information about the history of the political discourse surrounding the coroner's inquest. If listeners wanted to follow you on social media, where should they look? So I primarily am on Twitter at Rose Lerner. That's R-O-S-E-L-E-R-N-E-R. I am also on Instagram at rose.learner. Um, and I'm on Facebook at Rose Learner Romance, but I don't use those nearly as much. Um, I also have a Patreon. Uh, if anyone wants to hear from me every week or you want to know more about what I'm working, you want to keep updated on what I'm working on. I also share a lot of like little cute, like historical tidbits and fun, weird stuff that I learned on there. And that is also Rose Learner. And I also do have a, a freelance editing, book doctoring, research assistance business, which is at rosedoesthereresearch.com. Um, And then, of course, everything to do with me is on my website, which is roselearner.com. Well, I will include links to all of those in the show notes. So thank you so much for sharing your time with the Lesbian Historic Motif Project. Oh, my pleasure. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Lesbian Historic Motif Podcast. See the show notes for links to people and topics. Most shows will have a transcript linked as well. If you have a book announcement, a topic suggestion, or might like to appear on the show, please drop me an email. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate it and subscribe on your favorite podcast app, and consider supporting our Patreon.